Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hello, everybody. How are you? Welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I am Brad Listy, and I am in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. Today, my guest is George Saunders, author of a new story collection entitled Liberation Day. You know, we harden around this idea of ourself as being the star of the show, the smartest person, the person in control, the person that's going to live forever, the person who never makes a mistake. You know, we, we construct that for ourselves, and it's all f false, you know, or it's temporary. It's kind of conditional. And then every so often the world goes, well, yeah, I know that you're Brad, but also a tree limb is falling on your head. Or maybe more dramatically, you make a mistake. You know, you drop a tree limb on somebody's head. That doesn't fit with my idea of myself as a person mindful and cool and in control of everything but of course it happens all the time but that's the the moment when the fiction of the permanent wonderful self gets punctured by reality you know so i think a lot of times in the book there are places where someone finds out that their self and their their love of self is causing them some trouble that was george saunders his new story collection is called liberation day it was published just yesterday by Random House. This is George's first new collection of short fiction in nearly a decade. The last one being a collection entitled 10th of December, which came out in 2013. The stories in Liberation Day embody all that we have come to expect from the work of George Saunders. These are powerfully imaginative works of fiction. They are expertly crafted, deeply intelligent, deeply insightful. They are skeptical and often antagonistic or even disdainful toward the values and practices of late capitalism. These are stories that in many cases are very funny. At other times, they're quite moving. All of them are filled with deep empathy 
and concern for the human condition. I should also add that this is a very versatile collection that really showcases the range that George Saunders is capable of as he moves from stories with a more speculative or sci-fi bent to those involving, for example, workplace or domestic concerns in the modern era. I loved reading it and loved talking with George Saunders again. This is his third time on the Other People podcast, and you will hear that conversation in just a bit. Today's episode is brought to you by Tin House, publisher of Night of the Living Res, the debut story collection by Morgan Talty. It is a wonderful, powerful debut that left me reeling. Night of the Living Res is set in a native community in Maine, and it explores what it means to be Penobscot in the 21st century and what it means to live and to survive and to persevere after tragedy. These are 12 searing, funny, compassionate, vivid, heartbreaking stories that really breathe life into a family and a community that are struggling with a painful past and an uncertain future. It's a standout collection and it is getting very well-deserved rave reviews. Once again, it is called Night of the Living Res, available now from Tin House. Go get your copy. So before we begin with today's conversation with George Saunders, I do want to go over a few quick things. First of all, if you are new to the podcast, if this is the first time you've ever listened, I just want to let you know that The Other People Show is a weekly program featuring in-depth interviews with today's leading writers. It launched all the way back in 2011. New episodes go up every Wednesday. The show is free. There are nearly 800 episodes and counting so far in the archive. There are conversations with a wide variety of writers, including luminaries like Hanya Yanagihara, Jonathan Franzen, Roxanne Gay, Brett Easton Ellis, Elizabeth Strout, Min Jin Lee, Jasmine Ward, and many more. You can find the show online at otherppl.com. You can follow it on social media. It has a Twitter feed. The handle is at otherppl. It has an Instagram page at otherppl.podcast. And this program also has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? Every episode is available on YouTube. And I should mention that for the first time ever, there's a video episode. This episode, this conversation with um, George Saunders and I is available on the YouTube channel. You can watch it, the two of us. You can see us. So go to YouTube. Search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and hit the subscribe button when you get there. It's free. I want to mention as well that I do a weekly email newsletter. It goes out once a week. I will let you know about the latest episode. It's basically an enumerated list. I let you know about what's new with the podcast, and then I share a list of things that I've been reading and finding interesting and that's pretty much it. It's pretty straightforward. It's once a week. I will not inundate you with emails. The newsletter is completely free. So if you want to sign up for that, just go to the show's official website, otherppl.com, or go to bradlisty.com. You can sign up there too. It's the same newsletter in both places. 
If you would like to support this show, I would greatly appreciate it. The Other People podcast is offered freely. The entire archive is made available to listeners for free. So I depend on people who listen to support the show. And I've tried to make it as easy as possible to do that. You can support this show for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash other PPL pod. It's a sliding scale. You can support the show for $1 a month, $3, 5 10 20 whatever you can afford. And as you move up the scale, you can get merch, a t-shirt, a tote bag, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will wish you a happy birthday, all of that stuff. Just go to patreon.com slash other PPL pod and support this show and help keep it going. If you would like to email me, if you have thoughts, feedback, if you want to tell me a story or make a suggestion, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And before I forget, one more easy way to support the show is to rate it and review it wherever you listen. So if you listen on Apple Podcasts, give the show a rating, write a little review. It does help new listeners find the show. The more ratings that the show gets, the better it does in the algorithm and so on. So rate the show wherever you listen, write a review. I would appreciate it. Last but not least, did I already say that? But last but not least for real, I have a novel out. It is called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It was published in May. And if you want to read that, you can do so in whatever format you like, trade paperback, ebook, or audiobook. I am the narrator of the audiobook. One more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So if you want to read my book, you can do that. All right? So my guest today is George Saunders. And I think it's pretty safe to say that he is one of the world's preeminent writers of contemporary fiction. He is the best-selling author of 11 books, including a craft book called A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, a novel called Lincoln and the Bardo, number one New York Times bestseller, and the winner of the Man Booker Prize. He is also the author of several story collections, including the aforementioned 10th of December, published back in 2013. That one was a finalist for the National Book Award. His other story collections include Civil War Land in Bad Decline, Pastoralia, and In Persuasion Nation. George Saunders is a longtime professor in the creative writing program at Syracuse University. And it is just a thrill to have him back on the program to discuss his fine new book. Once again, it is called Liberation Day a new story collection available from Random House. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is George Saunders. I'm, I'm in a, a little bedroom in a, a new apartment we got in Santa Monica, California. And this is going to be my writing room someday. Now it's just a little bedroom where I go to do Zoom. <laughs> so I'm, I, I had no idea that you were now in Los Angeles. This is a permanent move? It's a, yeah, we got a little apartment because our daughters live here. <clears throat> and also because the last uh, 15 years we've been living out in the woods and we kind of have forgotten to do basic things like how to order coffee at a restaurant and stuff. So we're, right. we're upgrading to, to a higher level of sociability. Okay. So we're, we're going to split time between here and, and uh, Coralitos, California. Where's Coralitos? It's outside of Santa Cruz. 
Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. That's beautiful and I still there. commute back to Syracuse in the fall to teach. So it's a, it's a pretty peripatetic lifestyle. There you go. Yeah. yeah. You're bi-coastal, right? As they say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are now celebrating the publication of your first story collection in a while, almost 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. 10th and of December was the last. I'm wondering, uh, you know, with regard to the fanfare that greets the publication of your books nowadays versus earlier in your career when there was considerably less, uh, I'm wondering, you know, with all the interviews that you do, all the press attention that your book gets, do you like that part of it? Is this, is this a part of the process that you enjoy or is this something that you sort of grit your teeth and get through? No, I, I really enjoy it. And maybe a little too much, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a, for me, it's a, a kind of a way to celebrate at the end and get to talk to people who are interested in it and who are interested in their own right. So I, I figure it's just uh, all good, you know. And then also at this stage of my life, I really like to challenge myself a little. So th this, the pace of from now until like whatever, November, December, it's, it's a really intense pace, you know. And I kind of like to just see if I can do it, you know, do the travel and if I can sort of stay sharp. And, you know, you're on, on tour, you're always getting kind of curveballs. So I like that feeling of going, OK, I w could I stay alert at all times, you know, at most times anyway, give decent answers, be present. So to me, it's pretty fun. And the only bad part is that sometimes, for my taste, it goes a little too long and I'm kind of anxious to get back to work. But, uh, no, I, I try to really just conceptualize it as an incredible opportunity, really, you know. Yeah, well, I like this idea of it being an exercise in trying to maintain your like alertness and attention. Yeah, because it go, you know, if I t I can talk, if I talk too long, I just start talking. You know, there's there's no <laughs> delay between the thought and the speaking. So that's a real discipline to try to keep that reined in a little bit and make sense. Well, I well like as I was reading your book and thinking about uh, this conversation and jotting down notes and preparing what I was thinking to myself is like George has done at this stage a million of these things. And so the challenge that I presented to myself was to try to uh, throw you a curveball or at least make this make this both like maximally useful to you and to listeners, but also hopefully to do something that you haven't quite done. And I might fail. You might be like, I've done this 17 times already. But, so it's a uh, whole interview about motocross racing. That, that, that is what it's going to be. And also cooking. I'm going to have you oh, cook. Oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but no, I thought what we would do uh, is take a tour and take listeners through like a real tour of Liberation Day, story by story, and the way that I'm going to frame it up is that I am going to introduce the story. I will give a thumbnail of what I think it's about, and then you can correct me in all the ways that I'm wrong or add or subtract or whatever. Uh, and then another thing uh, that I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you to then kind of take over and talk about the creative point of origin for each story, if you can locate it. I know these things yeah. happen sort of intuitively and in, in the big jumble of sitting at the keyboard, but there are, there are such great flights of imagination in your work that it causes the reader, it causes me to go, God, like, where is he getting this from? Mm. Like, what is, what is George reading? What is George watching? What was it that he saw out in the world that got him, you know, moving down this path? No, that sounds like a great approach. That's wonderful. Yeah, let's and, do that. And then the, the second part will be, uh, in addition to creative point of origin, will be big questions. Because this conversation uh, follows one that we had after you published your craft book, A Swim in a Pond 
in the rain. And we talked a lot about craft there. And one of the things that I recall you talking about with regard to the Russians, the Russian authors, the great Russian authors of yore, which figure greatly into that book, is that they're not afraid to walk right up to the big questions. And so this is something that I think you aspire to in your work. So I'd love to have you talk about the big questions that you were kind of playing with in each story. So that will be the framework for the tour. And we're going to begin with the title story of the collection, Liberation Day, which to give a thumbnail is kind of a, uh, it's like a speculative, futuristic, eerie, kind of sci-fi story. There are workers known as speakers and workers known as singers who are indentured to entertain a wealthy family. And I kind of envision these people as AI. Uh, They're almost reduced to code or some sort of machine-like existence. And I'm just wondering where you begin, like where did this begin for you? Yeah, and by the way, that's a great thumbnail. I wish I I, I might have to plagiarize it because I've tried to explain that and I just go around and around in circles and nobody would want to read it, but thanks for that. Yeah, so, um, okay, so point of, in terms of origin, if I'm being really honest, I, the way it works for me is I'm just thinking, okay, time for a new story. Then I'm kind of saying, what does what do you feel like doing in your chest? Like, sort of like, um, what voice do you feel like doing? Just really being, you know, like fun seeking with that. So with this one, I, I think I had just finished the, the second, what turns out to be the second story in the book, uh, The Mom of Bold Action, which is sort of clipped in its tone. It's kind of very realistic and matter of fact. And I was just kind of wanting to push off away from that and do something a little wilder with the voice. Okay, so that was one part of the motivation. I'd been working on a screenplay for a story of mine called The Semple Girl Diaries, which was in 10th of December. And that's got a, a kind of a similar thing where these in that story, these women from what we understand to be poor countries are hung in this guy's backyard for kind of for like lawn ornaments. And so from writing in the screenplay, there's just a little bit of overflow from that idea. And then the third thing was from that Russian book, I'd been writing, I think, about Turgenev and his song, The Singers. So just that phrase, The Singers, was in my head. So those things were floating around, and I just said, okay, let me start something. And that's the part I don't actually understand is, I don't really exactly see how those three things make the first couple pages of the story, but they did. Mostly it's a fun-seeking riff. I'm looking for a riff, and I don't care what it's about. I don't care what the themes are. I just want to be able to make a voice and then pursue it a little bit. So that that's where the basic setup came, although that early I didn't really know who was speaking or why or anything like that. So it's it's that's the part that's really hard to talk about is it is sort of just sheer playfulness and if I can get into the mode of sheer playfulness, I know that something will come out that will then get more serious, you know? Okay, so here's a, here's a question, because Liberation Day, like other stories in this collection, not all of them, like you mentioned, uh, the mom of old action is more like realistic. So as a writer, as I'm kind of uh, reading these stories, that's when I can imagine myself theoretically having easier access to because it's a world that I know. But Liberation Day with these AIs or these speakers or these singers and this entire world that you've built is a real flight of the imagination. And the only way that, I guess the only way that any story works is if it has an internal logic to it that holds. But to build the internal logic of a story that is this imaginative 
and that has this specific of a voice because you, you talk about the music of the voice and trying to kind of feel what you wanted to uh what you wanted to hear or what you wanted to speak on the page it's very unique and i'm wondering how you like how do you get there to where you feel like the rules of the story are, are being adhered to so that the, the yeah. world holds together yeah for me it's the revision process is you're doing two things one you're trying to get those rules to reveal themselves you know and the way they do is that the the prose will suddenly be good in a certain place and you're like okay then you're in the story and therefore i have to stick to whatever rules you've just told me about you know so for example you're writing along and uh in this story at one point i used the word pinioned i am pinioned to this wall and it sounded cool, you know, because it, it's, a, it's a sort of a weird register. He'll be talking pretty casually, and then he'll suddenly use this strange diction. So I said, okay, pinioned. You're in this story as a word. Well, then it means that they're pinioned, you know. So that's a rule. He, they, you can't forget the whole rest of the story that their baseline is, is somehow attached to this wall. So it's, it's a, revision is a process of doing that. And at the same time, you, you're kind of aware that you 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 bit off a pretty weird concept, you know? I mean, it's, it's even just hearing it described is like, what? It's crazy. So then the revision is also based on me imagining you over there reading it and trying to imagine your resistances at certain points. Like at some point, is this thing so crazy that you're going to bail, you know? If so, I better run up and, and meet, beat you to the pass there and give you something to hold on to. So in a sense, that's what world building is, is I'm anticipating the places where you feel that this is just indulgent you know, or crazy for the sake of being crazy. And then I'm going like, no, Brad, it isn't, because let me tell you something. And I give you a little more information, and then you're like, well, okay. It's starting to make sense to me. So these questions you're asking, for me, that's completely what the revision process is, you know, is anticipating those resistances uh, and also seeing it as a, a way to f discover the rules of the world and then swear to adhere to them, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it, like a phrase that kept occurring to me, especially when I was reading these more speculative stories of yours is uh, deep dream. I was mm, just like, wow, mm, this is like mm. a really deep dream. It must require like a lot of concentration. It requires some concentration of me as a reader because it's one of those stories that sort of teaches you how to read it as you go. And that's part of the thrill is once you get it, you're like, okay, now I get it. I'm, I'm on board with this voice and I kind of understand the rules of this world. No, that's exactly right. That's what re revision is kind of, you're, yeah, exactly what you said. You're teaching the reader to read your story, but of course you're also teaching yourself it, along the way. You know, you're not sure yourself. Does it require more concentration of you, more labor to write a story like Liberation, that, uh, Liberation Day than it does to write a story that operates in a more realistic mode? No, it doesn't. Because really, even the ones that seem to be more realistic, they're actually not when you look at them. You know, they're just, they're, it's almost like, well, how do I say it? You know, if you, if you were going to dress in a really insane costume and you were going to dress, dress in regular clothes, it's basically the same effort. You know, you still, you still have to make sure it's, you know, on right and fits and so on. Once I, once I give myself the weird nugget to start with, it's pretty much the same procedure. You know, let me go through it, improve it line by line, make it more believable, in something like Liberation Day, the work is a little bit more high wire because it's possible that the idea is too crazy to finish. It's possible, you know. Mm. So you might find yourself cornered and like, well, I don't know how to get out of this. So there is that. But basically, it's, it's just, you know, like it's just going through it again and again and again. 
And in this story, part of what it's what I'm trying to do with those iterations is to smooth out the, the places where you might feel disbelief. You know, that that's really and but again, you know, it's the same in a realistic story. I, I think so. Yeah. So in terms of big questions with Liberation Day to kind of um, carry on the tradition of your Russian heroes, the questions I, I jotted down some questions that I thought you were addressing in the story and feel free to add subtract but one of them was what is entertainment <laughs> you know the yeah. ways in which human beings entertain ourselves uh, in this world can sometimes be questionable and certainly in this story it's a bit of an odd one <laughs> and also the relationship that we have like how is our relationship with technology affecting our humanity yeah those uh, are good ones yeah are the, I mean, were those things you were thinking about? Are there others? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the honest truth is I'm, it's for me that the order is, I know we've talked about this, but the order is the little reverse where I'm not really sure what I want to talk about until I've already talked about it. Because mm -hmm. with the way mine my work, if I know what it is, I've got a really conventional, like current event mind. You know, I don't have anything original to say about politics or culture. So if I started with something I wanted to say about technology, I'd say that thing and you'd go, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, I've heard that before. So for me, it's more like, you know, lead with the events and the action and the drama. And then at some point, of course, you are talking about things, but it, hopefully it's a suite of things. And hopefully it's not reducible to, to something at the end, you know. So when I think about the big questions in this story, one, they were revealed to me. I, you know, I didn't plan it. And second of all, they, it's sort of about, okay, how to say it? The big idea has to do with the process the reader goes through as she follows me. So on this story, uh, uh, my experience going through it was I kept having trouble knowing who to root for. You know, every time I'd situate somebody as a hero, I kind of undercut a little bit. Or every time emotionally you were thinking, oh, I'm for this person, something in the story. You know, so for example, in the story, there's a, a, a kind of a planned liberation of these people by this really unlikable guy. You know, so you're like, well, I don't like you. I've been told by the story not to like you. And yet you seem to be doing the thing I would do. And then he messes it up and it turns into fiasco. So uh, this was from the Russians, that idea that we're always trying to pick a hero in a story. And I think good stories tend to complicate that a bit, you know. And, and so they become meditations on our own um, habits of mind, you know. So, so I'm rooting for the, 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 the main character in the story, Jeremy. Because he's, I'm in his head, and he seems like a nice guy, you know. So I'm rooting for him, but then I start to notice that some of his ideas, his ideas are fucked up. Like he doesn't really understand his own situation. So I pull away from him a little bit. So I think that that's where, for me, the big idea of this is about the kind of tenuousness of our habitual allegiances, especially in a political time like ours where we know which side we're on. But real life makes a lot of complications at the edges. So I kind of felt inadvertently that I'd kind of stumbled onto that in this one. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think mm -hmm. it's fairly common for writers to discover their themes sort of after the fact rather than to begin with them. Yeah. Though I read like a writer like Vonnegut, he always comes to mind when I think about this issue is he seems to start with the big question. I, I could be totally wrong. Maybe yeah. he arrives at it the same way that you do. But um, I get the idea that you write it and then you you finish it and then you realize what you were concerned with. Yeah. Or even, I, you know, sometimes like with this book, starting to talk about it now, it's only occurring to me what the stories are about now, you know. But the idea is you're, as, a, as someone who's good at revision, you're just increasing 
all the you're, you're increasing the intensity of everything in the whole deal including by the order of the stories i don't know that i could really articulate what i mean by that but i feel it like okay it's getting better it's getting better then at the end when you really feel like you've done everything you can you pronounce it done and then the st- story starts saying did you know that i mean this like oh that's <laughs> okay that's, that's but i also think it's important to say that you know who knows i mean like a- a- every method can work it, and that's you know the the kind of the pisser about being a writer is that it, you have these nice outbursts of craft talk, but they might have nothing to do with you. You know, a writer might say, no, no, no. I start with every section outlined and it works for me. Then, okay, that's it. You know? Yeah. No, I just talked to Elizabeth Strout and she writes in scenes. She doesn't, she writes entire novels just in like these bursts. But does she, do you get the sense when she had those separate scenes, does she know what one is leading to, or is she just writing the scenes and then inferring a, a causality from the way they speak to her or how to, I think it's like the way that she described it to me is that they have to have a pulse, first of all. She has to feel mm. like, you know, a real heartbeat in each of these little scenes. And I think sometimes she writes them as standalones. Other times I have to imagine she knows where they will stitch together. Yeah. But then other times in the revision, she'll realize, like I want to say right. she said she wrote the end of Olive Kittredge very early in the process and sort of hung on to it and then realized, you know, it fit at the end, kind of like a puzzle mm. piece. But, yeah, you know, it's just interesting how everybody – you know, there's all these different ways of skinning the cat, and if it works, it works. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, we might have talked about this last time, but there there was a movie producer named Stuart Kornfeld that I knew, and he had this idea that, in a movie script anyway, every scene had to do two things. It had to be entertaining in its own right, so that spark or that whatever you just use for, and then it also has to move, he said, move the story ahead in a non-trivial way. So I, I mean, that's a little bit r- rulish, you know, but at the same time, it's kind of interesting. You know, if you have a scene that is really funny, wouldn't it be cool if it was funny and it changed the essential direction of the story, you know? So I, I always have that in my mind a little bit, like looking at a scene and going, okay, you're funny. I would really love it if you could make something happen, you know, in addition to mm. being funny. Or if, or if a scene is really functional, you're like, you know, you're, you're really doing a lot of work for the story. Could you be a little more charming? You know, and that way you kind of get a, a, a two for one. Wait, is Stuart, did Stuart work for Ben Stiller? Yeah. Or yeah. with Ben Stiller? Okay, I just yeah. talked to Jerry Stahl on this show, and he, I want to say, dedicated his book to Stuart. He was a buddy of his as well. Yeah, he was. Stuart just passed away, and he's a great guy. Funny, funny guy, and, and just a real, uh, he had worked early in his career with Mel Brooks. So you can imagine working as an, I, I don't know if he's an assistant with Mel Brooks all the way up to a couple of years ago. So he knew everybody and he had a great, lovely nature, funny, acerbic sometimes and really just sweet as anything other times. And Did you work on something yeah. with him, like a screenplay project or? Yeah, well, Ben and I have this long, long history with my story, Civil War Land and Bad Decline. We've been trying to get it made since 98, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it, it's come close a couple of times. So Stuart was involved with all that. And, uh, you know, it's funny because it never got made, but I just treasure those times. You know, where we'd we'd all be together trying to get it to work. And of course, and he was he was a he was a real deal. Well, I'm gonna just uh, in the interest of time, because you know we've got uh, what ten stories in this collection. I, I forget the exact. Yeah, number. I got a whole. But we've got to make sure we get through. So I want to move to the mom of bold action, which no comment. <laughs> that way. <we're... laughs> but I got to say, I, I just right away you had me with the title. I love this title. And this story is about a frustrated writer and a housewife who is facing turmoil when her young son is attacked in their small town. 
and he is attacked. This is where the kind of the funhouse aspect of the story comes into play. He is attacked by one of two identical old creeps. <laughs> I, I think. I mean, there's nothing. You know, there's yeah. some confusion about which old creep like, pushed her son down and physically assaulted him. Essentially, so um, feel free to add, subtract. But I would love to know the creative point of origin. Like, was there one that you can locate? Yeah, this one's easy, and it's a little bit. <clears throat> I always wonder if, if this is a good thing to confess. But I, but I, since I'm sure there are writers listening, I'll just do it. Th- th- that first two or three pages of the story fell off of another one from years ago, and it was a scene that wasn't needed in that story. It was funny, you know. It was a, there's a funny riff in there, but kind of to what we were just talking about, it was funny. But it didn't do any work to advance it. The story was 10th of December. So this woman was originally the mother of that kid. Mm -hmm. And in the story, it was a scene that had, it was funny. It totally slowed the whole thing down at a moment when it should have been speeding up. And when you stepped away from it, it didn't do any work. It it just was funny. So I would, you know, with some regret, popped it out of that story, put it aside. And then a few years ago, I was just going through these old files of similar chunks that have fallen off of other things thought the jokes were kind of funny and didn't have anything else going on. So my theory is if something has a spark, you know, if it has something going for it and you kind of free it from its original incorrect matrix, then it'll start kind of stretching its arms a little bit and going, oh, thank goodness, I'm out of that story I didn't belong in. And so that I just dropped it into a file and started messing with it. And then at the point where, you know, she, she's waiting for her son to come home. So I just had to think of a reason for her son to be late. Which and I I was kind of like tired of, you know I always get heat out of my stories by making animals or kids, you know putting them in peril. You know and I'm like oh, that's I'm tired of that. So I just made it a little. He gets shoved down by an old hippie. You know I mean, right right. Who who hasn't that happened to? I mean it's like every day. <laughs> um, so then it was off to the races. Just you know once I I got that the voice going. Now she's got a job. She's a writer. And then it was it went actually for me pretty quickly after that. Partly because it is in that kind of pared down voice where. It said early on that it's not going to be very wasteful. It's going to be pretty, pretty quick. You know, it's a yeah. It's a really, it's a funny story. Like all your stories. Like I just, uh, I loved these people, and the question that I found myself asking, like when I was trying to like think about what you were pondering in this one, is kind of a fundamental question about the difference between right and wrong. Like, how are we supposed to respond when evil is done to us or bad things happen to us, and uh, what is the meaning of justice? <laughs> you know, because yeah, there is a yeah. kind of vigilante, like funny, like sort of s- almost suburban feeling, domestic vigilante justice in this story. There, there was a moment where, so the kid had been pushed down and they caught the guy. And at that point, my heart dropped a little because I'm like, oh God, this is like CSI. Now we have to go with the court and, we, and I don't know. So there was just a, one of those weird inexplicable moments where I thought, oh, they catch a second guy who looks just like him. You know, and as soon as I had that, I, I get, got so happy because I didn't exactly know how to solve that one, but it felt funny. It felt like, oh, yeah. And so, yeah, so I, I, the, I, I it was justice, but it was also the way that, well, two things. She makes a small mistake and the whole thing goes in the shitter, you know. And I thought that's something I've noticed about life is the, the system of punishment is not really in proportion to the crime often. You know, you do some little thing, you, you know, you're, you, you don't pay attention for a second and you get in a car accident and somebody gets hurt or, you know, you say something offhandedly and years later you found out it was really hurtful. So that was something I was thinking about. And then the other part for me was just like, 
I have this really active mind, monkey mind, I would say, you know. So I kind of gave that to her. And I really enjoyed watching her worry play out and her attempts to forgive herself and her attempts to um, justify what she had done. And, and also and also her attempts, her attempts creatively to find a story in the minutia of her day to day life, because she is a writer and she's constantly right. thinking of like, you know, she looks at anything and, and, and starts to make a story out of it. And that becomes really fun. Right. And also for her, you know, she, I, I definitely uh, found some of myself in her because when she thinks of a story, she's basically saying, would this be guaranteed to work? You know, and then she quickly concludes, oh, no, that's stupid. And then she throws it away. So she's not a real reviser, apparently. So she's got a, a kind of a controlling mind where she wants to know it'll work before she does it. And I think that carries over into real life, too. You know, she's, she wants to control the situation with her son, and she does a couple slightly manipulative things. And, and um, so I did, I, I'm just really interested in the cause and effect of something like this, where you start with a small incident where she was wronged, and then because her, her response is a little disproportionate, the karma kind of exaggerates. And then finally, at the end of it, she's in a pretty—I feel really bad for her at the end of the story. She's in a pretty rough place, you know. Mm -hmm. And at the end, she does something that, when I first wrote it, I thought, oh, good for you. That was very noble of you. And then a, a few weeks later, I was rereading it. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. That's a little iffy what she did. You know, she withheld certain information from her husband to, to protect him. But there was like a second wave of thought, like, oh, yeah, actually, maybe that's not so good. Maybe she's enabling him in some way, you know. So, so that kind of story is fun when you're— you st I came to believe in it enough that it was like people to me. It wasn't just something I made up. It was, you know, people in the world. Well, the cause and effect issue is another, I think that's an, another part of the big question, uh, or the spectrum of big questions that this story is dealing with. And I actually, when I was prepping for this, read an interview that you did. I want to say it was with like the Harvard Crimson, something to do with Harvard, but it was a great interview. I was reading it, and I think you talked about cause and effect in a way that really moved me. But this is a this is an issue that's of interest to me. Like, it, it, cause and effect is it real, or is chance, you know, mm -hmm. dictating the way things unfold in the world? And is everything yeah. I do and say and think has it determined where I am today? Like, is it my fault, <laughs> or is <laughs> like what about the child in Ukraine who's caught up in this war? Like, what did they do? Cause and effect? You know, I guess it's right. their parents. Like, how do you make sense? Do, do you make sense? Have you arrived at some sort of point of understanding with respect to this not really but I, I think cause and effect means I think what I do is I kind of decouple cause and effect from blame or credit so cause and effect just means if you could be God you know and you could see you would see that every time a sparrow falls that's really true you know of course because scientifically of course it is everything you know has a, a ripple effect and so the world at this moment is the sum total of all the ripples that came before it's almost like circular like of course but then when you put an individual consciousness into it, it gets interesting because we aren't God and we can't anticipate that something we did four years ago had a bad effect or a good effect. We, we don't have that kind of clarity and that kind of information. So I totally believe it's cause and effect. I don't actually believe in chance, but I think things look like chance. You right. know, since we have that partial knowledge, it looks like an accident. But of course, if you could know all of it, 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 it wouldn't be. I think cause and effect is one of the things that a story trains us to look for in it, in it, you know, I mean, um, so if something does happen by chance in a story, I, I always think, well, it's got to cause something, you know, it, so, so a, a, a tree branch falls on a character, that's not, you know, that, that isn't his fault, 
But once it falls on him, then he has to react, and the meaning of the story comes from his reaction to that. So that's how, that's how I understand it anyway. And, of course, all, all this stuff is we just, each of us understands the mechanics of a story differently and believes in certain things and then acts on that to make stories that adhere to that dogma, and hopefully they work, you know. But I'm, I'm a little rule leery at this point. You know, having written that Russian book and talked about it and stuff, I'm like, I don't really believe in rules you know i believe there are tendencies but i don't really you know i don't, basically i my my philosophy with my students and everything is just do what you want <laughs> right. do what you want and do it emphatically enough that i love it and then that's good <laughs> there you go there you go so love letter is the next story and this is an epistolary story written in the hand of a grandfather who is concerned about his grandson writing to his grandson tenderly lovingly in a dystopian political situation in what feels like the not too distant future. This is an unsettling story in that sense, and it feels mm -hmm. uncomfortably possible <laughs> um, yeah. based on recent, uh, like the recent political climate here in the States in particular, but also elsewhere. So I'm wondering about creative point of origin. I can, I can imagine it, but maybe there was something more specific you could point to. Yeah, it was just, I mean, I'd had two um, arguments slash discussions with uh, people that I love. One was with a person to the right of me, and one was a person to the left of me. And it was, they were fun, and they were kind of, you know, on the edge of not fun. They were a little bit, you know, just before the, ele the 2020 election. And so they were kind of, you know, and I just thought afterwards, you know, most of my time I'm in my house thinking, and nobody's objecting to me, you know. <laughs> my ideas are all perfect. <laughs> And, and my arguments are cogent, you know. And then once you get out in the world, you start messing up and misunderstanding and, you know, saying things you don't exactly mean. And, and, and most excitingly of all, you start doubting your own certainties. You know, you, somebody, somebody who you disagree with will say something and you'll go, huh, shit, well, maybe, you know. So I was thinking about that and how actually that's a very lively thing to do, a really important thing to do. It's love in a sense. You know, if you love the person, then that's a, that's a way of pushing it into real love because you, they love you in spite of and they love you because of and, you know. So I just thought I'm going to try to write down something like that mostly as a way to vent about my anxiety about the upcoming election. That was really it. So originally the guy was me, exactly me, talking to an imaginary grandson about 10 years from now and, you know, and that's... The, and but even as I was doing that, I'm like, okay, you grandfather have to distinguish yourself from me, because this can't just be my thoughts. And so he started to come out on the page a little more, I would say, cautious than I am. You know, a little more careful, careful. Don't, he's telling his grandson to not get in trouble with this new authoritarian regime. So he became a character, and he became kind of like that representative part of each of us that in a crunch maybe puts their head down a little bit you know so that was really it and then I, and then basically when I'm doing that I'm always looking for some kind of change within the story so if he starts out being a cautious person urging his grandson to be careful I kind of want to rattle his cage a little bit and and I think at the end of that story in my reading of it he he is slightly less sure of himself than at the beginning and he even offers his grandson a little money if, if the grandson does want to become a little rebellious you know and, and um so I, I don't know I, it was but mostly you know it was like i, I want to do an experiment could i take these really lively very current political feelings i was having and use them to write a story you know yeah that, that was just an experiment really and the questions that i came away with from love letter how best to respond to fascism 
Is it worth surviving in a brutal and corrupt system by becoming complicit with it, even if you know it's wrong? You know, these are the tough questions that I think extreme political circumstances can ask of us. And really maybe any political circumstance, like what is my moral obligation as a citizen might be another question. And I think that's what this grandfather is wrestling with. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, you know. And the other thing that came into my mind is just that, you know, it's funny. Especially when one goes into interview mode, you know, as I am at the moment, like you kind of can convince yourself that your job is to have an answer at every moment mm-hmm. for everything, you know. And when I'm writing, writing this guy, I'm like, oh, yeah, so he basically didn't have a good answer at the time. He and he he, he didn't maybe have any options at the time. He kind of makes that case that, that a guy like him, he's working full time. He's got dental problems. He, you know, he's not a, a powerful guy. And then now, as he's talking to his grandson, he doesn't have a lot of options. He did what he did. So that I think I was thinking a bit about how for all of our good intentions and for all of our internal narratives that tell us that we have an answer for everything, you know, most of our life, we're in a state where we actually don't have any answers. And we're just praying that some bad shit doesn't happen to us to, to, to demonstrate that to us, you know. But mostly we're... we're we're in a state where our, our current views are probably not exactly right. Uh, our current actions are not as virtuous as they as we think they are. And every so often, the world will swing around and whack us in the head and prove that to us. So it's kind of like the, the whole book to me is a little bit like this. As I was writing it, it sort of made me feel a, a bit of enforced humility, like, oh, man, it's we, we are very much at the whim of the world. We really are. And that's it, you know. And so, of course, because we know that, we kind of construct ideologies and craft talks and you know all this stuff we we and at at the end of each one of those the moral is always but it's okay (laughs) but as we're kind of finding out maybe you know in certain times it was not okay and and you know people died with that on their lips you know i was wrong (laughs) you know i mean that's true well and also just like these circumstances and that life will present us sometimes where there really aren't any great options that happens right. a lot too. And I think we can trick ourselves or I can trick myself into thinking like there's a right answer here. There's a way out or there's right. a way in that I'm just not seeing. And it's the, but it's sometimes in life, it's trickier than that and more oh, yeah. difficult. And I think one, the other thing in the, in the whole book that I had in mind or, or sort of wrote myself into having in mind is just the idea that the, the, the reason that's so painful is because we, you know, we harden around this idea of ourself as being the star of the show the smartest person, the person in control, the person that's going to live forever, the person who never makes a mistake. You know, we, we construct that for ourselves and it's all false, you know, or it's temporary. It's kind of conditional. And then every so often the world goes, well, yeah, I know that you're Brad, but also a tree limb is falling on your head. Sorry. You know, (laughs) and at that moment you're kind of offended because I'm Brad, you know, I'm George, I'm Brad. Uh, This shouldn't happen to me. Or maybe more dramatically, you make a mistake. You know, you drop a tree limb on somebody's head. That doesn't fit <clears throat> with my idea of myself as a person mindful and cool and in control of everything. But of course, it happens all the time. But that's the, the moment when the fiction of the permanent, wonderful self gets punctured by reality, you know. And that's always waiting to happen. And if we're lucky, it doesn't happen today. And, you know, we can kind of... So, so I think a lot of times in the book, there are places where someone finds out that their self and their, their love of self is causing them some trouble. Speaking of which, uh, I will take us to the next story, which is called A Thing at Work, which is uh, about an escalating office dispute 
that uh, disrupts multiple lives, like both in and out of the office. And it's a it's a funny story too. I, you know, there's something there's something great about your grasp of the absurdities of the workplace and of corporate capitalism and the demands that it places on us, moral and otherwise. But also just the minutia of it, like the break room and the coffee and the supplies and all this stuff. You know that it really does a great job of rendering all of that. And I'm wondering, again, again, like point of origin. Is there something you can recall that got you started on this one? Yeah, I mean, years ago I worked as a tech writer at this company in upstate New York, and there was a really nice woman who worked with us, and um, the only the the only thing I re- took from her was that at one point she left she she vanished from the workplace for about two months and then when she came back she kind of sheepishly said she'd been in jail because she had she had bounced some checks such a sweet person great worker and we just said okay and and that that we went on you know so i just always thought that little detail of somebody who you know was coming into this somewhat you know it was a pretty nice corporate environment not not great, but it was okay, you know, and working alongside everybody very cheerfully. But meanwhile, her life is hard enough that she's bouncing checks on purpose. So that detail stuck with me. So I just took that one detail and left her, the real person, behind. And just about um, maybe seven or eight years ago, I just started riffing on the idea of somebody who does that. And it, the story had taken a lot of different directions. And then about three years ago, I just I brought it back to focus on her uh, with her as kind of the linchpin and a couple of other people and so the the process was kind of starting with her and at that moment she's also stealing from work a little bit after she gets out of jail she she just does some minor theft but it's like paper it's like paper towels you know it's like it's like these little items is she not stealing like huge fistfuls of cash no, coffee bag which she's like just yeah 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 things like that like little you know little um pounds of flesh or whatever for right. her labor and she does you know she's sort of like doing the thankless work of the office right. Uh, and not getting paid a ton and all the rest. But the questions that this brought up for me, uh, this is definitely a story that's about power. It's interesting in this like kind of microcosmic environment of the office. You know, you, you mentioned the the main character. Is her name Gloria? I could be confused. Brenda. Brenda, 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 Brenda yeah. sorry. Yeah. And uh, you have Brenda and then you have these other, it's like Tim and there's and another. Tim and Jen, there we go. Yeah. And they are more powerful than she is. Tim is the head honcho. Jen is maybe the one who is best at pulling the levers of power or operating, as I would put it. Some people just know how to operate in these systems, Mm -hmm. you know, and I've always struggled with it. And so it's like, whenever I see someone, whether in real life or in a fiction, who knows how to operate in those contexts, (laughs) it's a fascination to me. You know, it's like, what, what does it take? You know what I'm saying? Like, what do you, how do you have to be wired to walk into a place like that and be like, okay, I know how to deal with this. And not only do I know how to deal with it, I know how to deal with it on the spot in a moment of difficulty and tension and personal responsibility, you know, all of which you bring to bear in this story for these characters. You know, Jen is very implicated in the drama of the story. And it's just a fascination to me how power works. And I, I love that phrase. Uh, I, I remember hearing that in Chicago. Yeah, he really knows how to operate. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's, yeah. yeah. So it's that. And then I think it's also how are we supposed to respond to the moral compromises that the quote unquote real world sometimes requires us to make? And I think of that in particular with regard to Tim. Yeah. 
who That's is right. the the CEO and who has to sort of serve as judge and jury over a lot of this stuff while also taking into con- consideration his own personal interests. Yeah. Uh, it's just an interesting moral framework. Yeah, you put your finger on it. Because for me, the the uh, at the end, one of the big things was he, he makes a, 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 there's a part I really like where he he is trying to figure out if he should stand with this lower class woman and protect her. And he thinks of his own mother, who was very similar to her in terms of her, the difficulties in her life. And he resolves very grandly to help her. And we're like, oh, thank goodness, you know. And then the operator comes in and makes that kind of hard for him. And he capitulates, which so that moment there, there was there was a draft somewhere where he he uh, makes everything nice and the two women become friends. And it just, you know, so you think about endings like that, that was that could happen. You know, sure, it could happen. And I wrote it pretty well, but it just felt like a lower energy thing than the ending I used. And I think it, and it was because uh, in a certain way, you get that first ending with this one. You can imagine a world where he actually makes good on his promises and protects the woman. So we're all thinking, yeah, that would be nice. And then the story has a chance to go one step further, which is what if he doesn't? You know, so that was an interesting, it took me a while to, to figure that out. But in the end, he does what I think, you know, I, I have done stuff like that where you're in at work and someone says, did so-and-so fuck that up? And you're like, yeah. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, you sort of have to, and then you know, so or or some, and I've also done the other thing where I've just lied about it, and then gotten in trouble for it. <laughs> so it's you know, these are not easy questions. These kinds of things are not. I mean, they cause me such great <clears throat> anguish. You know, these sorts of human uh, interactions, and you know, where the, under like the underlying all of it is money, right? It's like your yeah. your bread and butter and how you're going to survive, and so. You know the decisions that people have to make in these circumstances uh, are yeah. grueling and they cost a lot. You know they, they have a, they have a real human cost. Yeah, and also that kind of uh, consensus view that well, you know, he, she has to be fired because blah blah blah, and then you think, oh, that's pretty harsh. You know that, that you'd have a consensus view that sometimes allows you to be a killer. You know, and just cut cut somebody's livelihood off. Right. Yeah, and then also, you know, from those Russians, I I think I got sort of sensitized to the idea that if you want to look for a morality in a story, it can be really small. You know, like in Love Love Letter. You know, if one guy has this extra cautious idea, you kind of understand it. Well, you multiply that times five million people. And you get a, you get a, like for example in Germany you get the Holocaust. There there was a, a wonderful Deborah Eisenberg quote about how it really just uh, evil on that scale just takes a bunch of people being quiet and a handful of people being loud. The quiet people are they don't think they're making a referendum. They just think they're minding their own business. But cumulatively, you know. So in this story, this one yeah, this lady who probably should have gotten fired. She's a thief. All right, you know, she gets fired. We follow her home a little bit, and you think, oh, boy, that's rough, you know. Multiply that times, you know, 20 million small decisions like that, and you get some explanation for why people feel alienated in a, in a capitalist culture because, you know, those little little slices are happening all the time in everybody's life. But Yeah, by the way, you're also bringing, uh, you're bringing to light the fact that stealing in maybe all of the world, but cap- I'm thinking of American capitalist culture, it's as common as uh, breathing. I mean, people are yeah. always like going on, you know, little boondoggles and swiping the company credit card and 
you know, that guy, taking home a yeah, roll yeah. of paper towels, that stuff happens all the time. You wonder how yeah, much how much it costs every year, you know? Right. Well, I wrote, I wrote my first book at work, you know? Right. <laughs> and so... <laughs> yeah, you're the poster child. <laughs> and, and, and I didn't hand over the royalties. <laughs> yeah, right. So the next story is called Sparrow, which is such a sweet story, uh, like an unlikely love story about a man with an overbearing mother, and uh, they have like a family store, she, you know, the mother is the, the owner. She's kind of passing it along to her son who now kind of runs it. And there is a woman who works there. Is this Gloria? I, that's why, Gloria. Okay, yeah, that's, that's Gloria. Gloria. Okay, so Gloria works there. And she is this sweet, lonely, often misunderstood woman who, you know, like, like I was saying, works in the store. It's so funny the way you depict her, the way she's always kind of saying exactly what you would expect someone to say <laughs> uh but she's lovable i mean you just absolutely love her and it winds up being this really big-hearted like unlikely love story and yeah. what where did this one come from well this was that rare story that came out of a dream which usually i don't you know you, you dream something you go just stay in bed it's you know the uh the uh you know, the dancing coat hanger story, let's leave that one in the dream, you know. But um, there was something, it was a first page or so, or first maybe, you know, first paragraph, I had a, it just came to me in a dream, and when I was lying in bed, I could kind of keep going, you know, like that feeling where you just hit a vein, like, oh, God, I can do this voice. So I got up out of bed at about 3 in the morning and sat down on the kitchen table and just started typing without my glasses, so I can't really see, you know. And uh, and somehow I just kept going. I, thought, I felt like, well, you know, still going, still going. And so for me, the, but the real point of origin was this. While I was doing that, I was going pretty well. And I got to a place where I said, I typed a line. And of course, there had to be a fall. Because this, this sort of nondescript woman had fallen in love with this kind of macho, selfish guy. And, you know, and then I just went, ah, God, how boring, you know, that I know the direction my own story is going in. You know that kind of auto darkness that I think a lot of a lot of fiction tends to go that way because the stories kind of like it. But so then I started just trying, like trying to to work against my own narration a little bit. And I noticed in the preceding section there was kind of a collective community voice. We thought, we thought, you know, and and that narrator is kind of telling telling us what to think of this woman a little derisively. But meanwhile, in my mind, there was something that kind of liked this woman. You know, so I'm getting somebody talking to my ear saying she's really not so great, but I'm not entirely trusting that person. So at that point, I started saying to the story, would you, you know, let's discuss the possibility of another outcome. Can we can we do that? You know, and I felt this real lightness of heart, like, oh, of course, that happens all the time. You know, two people get together. They're both have big defects, but they like the defects in one another, and that's a love story. You know, that, that's every love story, actually. So it was kind of a fun thing, and it happened all, like, you know, before the sun came up. And then I, you know, of course, rewrote it for, well, for months after that. But the basic core of it was there. But So it, I learned something, which is you can sometimes interrogate your own narration to find out where the story might want to go. You know, the fact that I had put in these kind of snotty community narrators that meant that I could pick a fight with them later and I could defy them, you know. But that, but when I sat down, it was just me talking. It was that dream voice in my head, you know, weird. Well, I want to have you read a passage from this story, if you would, please, because it really, you know, will give listeners a great idea of uh, the sweet like love story that you're telling here. And I think this passage is where 
the man and the woman, uh, Gloria, Gloria, and uh, I'm going to forget the guy's name because that Randy. I forgot it too. Is it Randy? Randy, yeah. Yeah, Gloria and Randy. This is this passage depicts them as they really start to fall in love. So imagine you are a woman who all your life people have shied away from and avoided, and whenever you said something, it went out into the world and just hung there, causing a neutral or slightly adverse reaction. And every time this happened, you felt it. And so behind you in your life, there had accrued a series of light but painful little blows, conspiring to convince you that there was something wrong with you. And now you find yourself in the daily presence of a man who seems to be coming to like you and has even started to leave you little presents on the break room table, a chocolate mint, a single Twinkie. And imagine that this man's mother is against it, against this thing that is the thing that now propels you, Gloria, out of bed every morning. And that she, the mother, finds all of this amazing and laughable and disappointing and even one day tells her son that his interest in you is causing her to downgrade her opinion of him. And imagine that the man shares this with you. But far from discouraging him, he says, this has actually made him feel for the first time that he is the protector of some woman, not his mother. Which, he says, blushing, has made him feel tender toward you or whatnot. Imagine the kind of month that would be for you if you were that woman. And imagine you were that man who for the first time feels he is protecting a woman, not his mother. A woman who is so much more full of life than his old, tan, bent but agile mother, whose smug eternal certainty is for the first time coming to seem tiresome. As are those big honker glasses that once belonged to his father, into which she for some reason put new lenses last year, that is, 11 whole years after your father's passing, that woman, that young, energetic woman with whom you often now find yourself in pleasant agreement, might suddenly start to seem even prettier to you, even if no one else seems to notice it. But you notice it, this uptick in her prettiness, and say so, in one of those notes you've begun leaving on the break table with those snacks, notes that are getting longer and longer lately and sometimes even border on the passionate, in which your grammar will sometimes go a bit off as you struggle to express these new feelings. And it might even include a drawing of, for example, a cartoon man with stars pouring out the open top of his head. And one day, there comes a kiss in the stockroom. After it, you say, not bad. To which she replies, not bad at all. Which you take as confirmation that you are, as you have always felt yourself to be, an excellent kisser, and now someone has finally noticed it. Thank you very much. So I just love that. And I want to say to all the guys out there listening that if you're into someone and you're trying to woo her, a single Twinkie is always an option. <laughs> it's so tasteful. It really is. If you give, if you give two, it's like too much. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the single artfully placed and presented Twinkie, well lit, it could work wonders, you know. With but, a single bite, a single bite taken out of it. Yeah. That's a nice. It right. means I'm participating with you <laughs> in, in in this sin. Uh, but it is a lovely story, and uh, you're just rooting for uh, rooting for Gloria, rooting for him too. You know, with his overbearing mom. And I think some of the questions that it brought to mind is the you know what is the power of love in this world? Because you know, not only does it have this incredible impact on Gloria and Randy but with hopefully without spoiling too much it also affects other characters in the book 
You know, it's interesting to me, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the ways in which the people around two people who are in love can change based on Mm. the force of their interaction. Like, that's a real thing. You you feel that at weddings. I mean, I know, look, I know there are cynics out there and not all relationships work out, but I am a sucker for a wedding because I think it's an optimistic human occasion. Like, I I love a wedding because it's like, okay, we're rooting. Let's do this. Let's love each other. You know, it always gets to me. And uh, I feel it, you know, and I also can observe it in the people around me. And it's also noticeable outside the context of a wedding, just when you're in a room with two people who are really in sync. So it, it made me think about that. And then it also made me think about what it truly means to be seen because Mm -hmm. Gloria is a woman who all her life has been struggling with this. No one ever sees her. And maybe in in some ways she doesn't see herself, but then Randy sees her and that changes everything. Yeah, and what I liked about it as it came out was that he sees her, he doesn't really see her, he he sees her in its own context. You know, he likes her because she, I mean, in fact, because she doesn't really have a lot of opinions, she just agrees with his, which he takes as sanction. Oh, she's so insightful, you know. But I think that's the way it, it works, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you're, you're always doing sort of love is kind of like a, a attentive compensation, you know. You're, you're, but, but I also loved your first idea about, you know, when I was writing that Lincoln book, that's something I, I noticed was that this idea of like viral goodness, if you see a person do a selfless thing, it changes you and you know so I like that because it means it's a really good rationale for trying to do good things you know it's not just okay the good thing itself and maybe you're right about it being a good thing maybe you're not but if your intention is good it it actually does make a little cloud of of positivity around you or or engagement or activity and I think especially in you know as we're saying all these times like these I don't think we should underrate the power of the incremental you know you do you do uh, in one exchange with somebody, you're trying to stay positive, that has an effect. And if in one exchange with somebody, you're being nasty as shit and you're being aggressive or whatever, that has an effect. Mm-hmm. So maybe, you know, when I start feeling kind of powerless, which this this particular era is making me feel, I just kind of go back to that. Like, well, you can only control the stuff at arm's length, really. So do that. Try to be, you know, positive in your own surroundings and hopefully it'll, you know, it'll link up with somebody else's. And for the listener, when George referred to that Lincoln book that he wrote, he's referring to uh, Lincoln and the Bardo, Booker Prize winning Lincoln and the Bardo. So I just want to make sure people... um, That Lincoln book, you know. That Lincoln book. Just that prize winning Lincoln (laughs) book. That was a big bestseller. That piece of crap. Yeah, right. But uh, (laughs) the next story is called Ghoul. And it is, I think, it shares a, a kind of kinship with Liberation Day. It's another one of these stories that feels speculative and a little bit sci-fi. It is narrated by a character named Brian, and it takes place in a subterranean amusement park. I believe, is it called the Maws of Hell? Is that what it's called? Is that yes. Just, okay, yeah. <laughs> right. I have to talk to the marketing department about that, but that is what the, <laughs> yes, it is called the Maws of Hell. And the employees, like I think, you know, one of the big, things for listeners to understand about this story is that within this realm, this subterranean amusement park called the Maws of Hell, uh, employees are punished brutally for the slightest infraction. And they are waiting for visitors who increasingly, it seems, might never come, might never show up. But that's my thumbnail. Like, this is another one of those stories where I'm like, wow, where did this start for George? Like, it seems like you... uh, 
What were you? Were you at an amusement park? Were you at Disney World? What happened? No, no. It's just for me, it's all, you know, often the answer to your question is voice, voice, voice. So for this one, I had read the audiobook of Civil Warland, my first book, and I had never read it aloud, the whole thing before ever. And I just was like, oh, that's actually, that voice is still speaking to me. I, I can still do it. And I can see by reading it that it's it's um, pretty weird voice, but it's it can get you into places that are unusual, you know. So I just came home and thought, oh, I'm going to try to just reactivate that voice and see if I can still do it. And it was Halloween, I think, you know, it was autumn. So I'm like, okay, sort of, I mean, I guess sort of thinking about those haunted houses that you built as a kid, you know, in your garage or whatever. But again, like with Liberation Day, it just starts off as a riff. You know, you start doing a certain voice. And for me also, you know, I can't do an infinite number of voices. So it's almost like there are seven or eight boxes. And this one, I'm like, okay, so that story, John, that I wrote years ago, that's kind of like this. Liberation Day has got kind of, it's kind of like um, kind of an optimistic, lovable moron, you know, like there's just this, I don't know, I, the, the box has that label on it, optimistic, lovable <laughs> moron, used infrequently. But so I, so then you just start doing that voice, you know, and in the, in the fun of it and the kind of comedy of it, it the, the person will blurt out something that you can use to make plot. You know, they, they tell you what your job is, their job is, or they tell you what their usual day is like. So that's where, for me, that's where kind of the leaping is involved. Like, I don't really at that point know that it will be a story. I, I'm trying to not figure out how it could be a story. I'm just trying to sustain that voice, usually for two or three pages. And then, then I'll cut it back. I'll say, okay, well, that's a too much. Let me come back to this section here. And that will give me both a crazy voice, but a fairly realistic spine of action. Like something's happening that day. And, you know, yeah. And so for me, the fun is that not, is that not knowing you know, I, I know it's kind of funny so far. Page one is pretty funny. It also there's a kind of audacity in it where you're like, the reader suspects that you're just messing around, having fun, and you are, and then you both know that there's an obligation on the table, which is that this thing is supposed to rise to the level of an actual story and be about something important in spite of its silliness. You know, so that's kind of just a mutual like a dare sort of. You know, so. And you, know. you have to, yeah. I mean. It, I think the the thing about it uh, as a reader and as a writer that I kind of marvel at is like like bridging that divide, like pulling off the magic trick and making it believable. And, and you know, as fun as it is and as, as silly or audacious as it can be, there's also a, like a real edge to it that often yeah. comes into play in your stories. There's a lot of menace in Ghoul, you oh, know, yeah. and you start <laughs> yeah. to you start to move through the story as a reader and kind of the smile disappears from your face a little bit. You're like, oh, geez, yeah. like, what is yeah. this? <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, for me, the trick is you have to, uh, every day, you have to get up trying to believe in that reality. So, and which means in a certain way, stop believing in your themes, but look at the, what does the floor look like and what's his daily routine? And even though it's a really far-fetched concept, you have to believe in it. Because of course, you know, like if you think about, imagine you're Ben Franklin, you know, and then someone describes a typical day in the life of a United States office worker. That's sci-fi. I mean, it's what you know, the, a copier. What's a copier? You know, what's the, uh, th that machine makes coffee? You know, like that. So it, everything is far-fetched, actually, depending on your where you are. So for me, it, with this, I'm like, well, it is. It does seem to me far-fetched, but it doesn't seem far-fetched to him because he lives there. You know. Then you sort of do that self-hypnosis of saying I accept everything about this world as being just as realistic as my most realistic story let me provide the same amount of detail and then 
what you're waiting for, what I'm waiting for, especially in that story, was, okay, when are you going to start speaking to my reader where she is right now in 2022? You know, it, 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 can't, it can't just be a romp. It has to be, you know, I'm always looking for a romp with a little bit of meaning you know, or relevance. So, so then you're just kind of cooking it, you sort of cooking this soup until suddenly it says, oh, I'm a story now, and I will be speaking to a reader who is in Cleveland in 2022 living her life, you know. And that's, that's, the, that's the really uh, hard part, you know. Well, I want to be respectful of your time, so I'm going to try to pick it up here. We have a couple more stories to do. Are you are you good to go through them, or do you want let's, to just let's do, do one? Mul- we'll do multiple choice. That, yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah do, no, we'll, I'm, we'll, I'm totally fine. Okay, yeah. lightning round. We'll do lightning round here. The next story is called Mother's Day. Man, I'm glad I didn't make a 20-story book. We'd be here until like 8 o'clock. <laughs> you know, this is, what is it, uh, Best Laid Plans? You know what I'm saying. I had this great No, it's vision. a great idea. I lo- I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Just, so we're in Mother's Day, and I love this story. The interiority of this story really got to me, the way that so much of the drama plays out inside of the minds and memories of these two women who both love the same man and who have an uh, existential reckoning in a hailstorm, mm. if that's a way of putting it. Yeah, uh, good. Just a, a wonderful story, unexpected, so many good twists and vivid characters, creative point of origin. Is there one you can point to? Well, I think what I would say about this one is it started way back during the time I was writing 10th of December. I had a version of it then, and it was way off. It was uh, based on a woman that we knew when our kids were little in this little town in upstate who was, uh, she'd walk around town very elegant. She had a pearl necklace, looked very good, and then the word got out that she, she was a hoarder. And and it, there was something, her, she had a very old Victorian house, but the front porch was missing. It was just gone, you know. And then the story was that at one point her son took her out to lunch or her maybe her daughter did for a really long lunch so that the city could get in and take all of her stuff out. And she was heartbroken. And, you know, so it started off to be that story about this woman who was a hoarder, basically. And I wrote that for years and years, sent it to New Yorker, got rejected. And I just somehow wasn't wasn't going, you know. And so what I often do in that case is I just will add a second character just put the second character in there and see why she's in there. And in this case, it turned out that they both loved this woman's husband. And so, but it was a really long, crazy process. So that was just it. And we just, you know, going back to it again and again and going, I know there's something in here. I love her voice. Let me just keep poking at it to see how, how this long monologue can start to resemble a story, you know. But for me, that's just, that's the iteration, you know, over and over and over. Well, but it's interesting that you stuck with it. Is this the is this the exception rather than the rule with you, or is it like, I can imagine you send a story off, it gets rejected, or you're struggling with it for such a long time that eventually you just say, you know what, this one's not meant to be. But the distinguishing factor here is that you just love the voice. It just yeah, and I try to never say that. I really try to just say, okay, you're just not seeing it yet. If the thing has power, you know. So this the first couple of pages of this were in that old version, I would say. And I just liked her. I know I like. I know that's got to be in a story somewhere. So I just haven't found the path yet, you know. So my my kind of default is don't ever give up. Although I have one now that I may give up on. I, I somehow I can't I can't for the first time in a long time. But yeah, I just feel like you know if you if yeah you know what I think is if if I can get a paragraph that really is funny or is vivid or whatever that I've considered that a real precious gift, and I don't want to discard it i just going to keep it uh and just try to find the right story to surround it basically you know Hmm. so we'll move to elliot spencer 
which uh, again is, I, I would put this in sort of like the same DNA pool with Liberation Day and Ghoul. Elliot Spencer is about an elderly homeless man who has been reprogrammed as a kind of crisis actor in mm-hmm. political contexts or protests. He's kind of a pawn, yeah. you know, he's kind of this guy who lived under a bridge and he's been taken by some nefarious organization and, and reprogrammed to, you know, and bent to their whims, basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This this feels like maybe also um, in an, you know, kind of a an oblong way, like a kindred spirit to love letter, you know, something that was born of, of kind of political concern and a contemporary yeah. sense. Actually, it was more, it was the Liberation Day in that it was a voice. I, I just was just thinking about sort of like, I guess, in some Buddhist way, thinking, okay, so I know that for me, uh, like rumination is my enemy. I thought, a conscious conceptual thought is my enemy. Because that's the thing that actually builds up the self, they say. You know, like, uh, I'm having a great day. I wrote a book. I'm George, blah, blah, blah. So I was thinking about that, and I thought, well, is the, is the goal then to have no thoughts at all? which sometimes is meditators talk about that. And I think it's not actually. But anyway, I thought, what would it be like if you, if someone could just take away all this detritus in my mind that I mistake for myself, all my memories, all my habitual ways of thinking about things, my belief system, just take it all away, leave the operating system in place, and, and then put that thing in the world and see what happens. Does the operating system have pre-inclinations that would make me myself again? Or shorn of all that, is it just, you know, who knows? So I just, and then, so that just reduced to, okay, well, I don't know about that, but what would he sound like? So he's got no language. Well, that sounds like a blank page. He, okay, he's got no language, but somebody's teaching him. And that became the beginning of the story. And so for me, the fascination is to say, okay, let's just try to come up with a charming, funny voice for that guy. And that's all I'm doing for the first couple of weeks. I'm just trying to come up with like a way that he can sound and trying to keep at bay any thoughts of theme or anything see if i can perfect his voice and then eventually that starts telling you who he is you know so it, it starts telling you which questions to ask of him you know mm-hmm. wh- why are you talking like that where are you you know so then only later did it become kind of had a sort of political feeling to it but that was late and i also tried to keep it out a little bit i tried to keep it a little bit unclear who's who's got him you know who, who did this to him it's hard to talk about this part of it but so much of the work that I'm doing is is just trying to do like a sustained musicality. Like, I started the voice this way. Hopefully, you kind of got it. Then I have to keep that same sound going, you know. And even I have to I have to escalate that sound. I have to make him in this case a little more articulate by the end. That takes a lot of energy just to do that, just to think of it musically. And so what I'm doing a lot in, is just arranging the prose so that you won't balk when you hit it. You know, I'm training you to hear that voice. Okay, then I fuck it up, and you go, Ugh, that's George. He just dropped the ball. That's not Elliot. It's George. Then uh, that can't be. So you, so it's a lot of sound stuff, actually. You know, we, we tend to talk about stories in terms of meaning and theme and, and all that, which is totally correct. But en route, and I think even in our enjoyment of the story, it's the musicality that we're actually responding to. You know, mm-hmm. if you take a good writer and a not-so-good writer, tell them to write the same theme— or the same story, it's actually going to be in the sound of the stuff that the good writer pulls ahead. And and we're going to keep reading because of the sound and the rhythm and whatever else you call that that makes us keep going. So I, I, I 
in talking about this with you like this, it's really interesting because my answer just keeps being voice. You know, yeah, that's voice what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. really, it's Which really I didn't like, actually realize until today. So thank you. Well, no, but yeah. it's like, you know, I think for people who read this collection and who read these um, more speculative and I mean, Elliot Spencer, like on the page, the language is it's formally inventive, like some of the spacing and the way that the syntax is and all this stuff, the capitalization, you know, so much of it is tied to sound. So much of it, I can imagine had to require a ton of trial and error in the editing process to make sure that yeah. you weren't losing people, you know, because you're asking the reader to, to sort of sing along with this music, you know, that is very uh, new and particular. But right. I think that it could be easy to misapprehend the way that you're building them because yeah. it's like, wow, this is such a artfully and like, it's such a, a sound construction. George must really have this big picture view going into it of what it's going to look like. He must be like an architect drawing the blueprint. And the truth is that you're like, no, it's really just the sound of it to begin with. Yeah. And yeah. all that other stuff follows the music of that voice. Yeah. It follow, for me, it follows with the repetition. You go through it again and again and again, doing exactly the kind of adjustments you're, you're suggesting. So I, I think sometimes of, you know, actual music, you know, like that song Tangle Up in Blue, you know, I love that mm. song. Yeah. And if you, if you talk about it, it's, it tells the story of a man who lived a, a roaming lifestyle or whatever but it's actually the the weird the rhythms and the way that guitar is and it's you know stuff that you can't even articulate that that compels you through it and if you said to somebody not dylan write a song about a guy with a rambling lifestyle <laughs> you wouldn't get that you know so right. so that's right. the pisser is that that's hard you know it's, it's not really formulaic and and um yeah so it's it's ends, that's why it's endlessly fascinating because you just can't reduce it really I'm now having a memory of reading like some Dylan biography or something about Dylan where he was talking about that song and how long it took him to write. Hmm. It makes hmm. some, it makes some sense. It's a it's a long song. Period. A lot of yeah. his songs run long, but it's a uh, you know it, it maybe to a degree that distinguishes it. It has like a narrative responsibility that might add a layer. You know. Yeah, yeah. But also every one of those lines is so you you know you don't really see it coming from the line before, and that's a real trick. You know. Yeah. Yeah. She was married when we first met soon to be divorced you know right <laughs> right right <laughs> i helped her out of a jam i guess but i use a little too much force that's that's pretty, pretty good, good. <laughs> um so last story is called my house and it is about a man who tries to buy a house like a beautiful old historic kind of house from a man who has lived there for a long time and whose wife is sick and in the like the the guy who owns the house currently with the sick wife is very particular about this house. He loves it. You know, he's just lived in it forever. It's really got all of his memories in it, and uh, you know, it's, it speaks to the way that we can imbue objects with so much meaning. You know, home especially, I think, carries a lot of meaning for people if they've been there a long time. And there's this great twist in the story, and I hope it's okay for me to talk about it where you know this guy wants to buy the house and he knows he's got to sort of charm this guy and he and he's just he really is charmed by the fact that this guy loves the house so much and so he sort of resigned himself to pay the asking price and then as he's having a conversation with this guy there's this wonderful twist where the current owner says and hey you know would you mind like after you buy it if i could maybe come back and stay a few days every year <laughs> like i i could imagine you as the writer getting to that moment and having that come to be and suddenly just being like there we go like it was that yeah. the linchpin of the story like is that what well, made it, it all click it was and here i'm going to contradict my usual my complete shtick manual and say 
um, what happened was there was a house like that in Cherry Valley, New York. We, we, we rented a house during the pandemic there, and there was a house on a hill that was just like the one described. Beautiful, big, yellow, probably built in the early 1800s maybe, and it just got my imagination. Oh, God, I could live, I could die happily there, you know, and, but it, right. we're not going to buy it. So um, then, you know, David Mamet talks about how writing a story is very much like those moments of involuntary fantasy that we have like where you think about what you should have said back in high school or when you uh, imagine getting revenge on your enemy, you know, in a way that you didn't do it. D just in your mind, you suddenly go, oh, wow, I just imagined that I'm a, a senator and I just made a big speech about whatever. So you didn't decide to do it. Your mind just went there. And he says that some really great storytelling comes out of that mode where your natural curiosity and your natural um, whatever it is, pride or desire, is just manifesting itself in, in fantasy. So one day I was driving around thinking about that house and my imagination, my little fantasy just went there somehow, like if I could buy that house. And then somehow that little twist just popped into my, I mean, literally just popped into my head, you know, of, of somebody saying, uh, I want to give you this house. However, I'm sure you won't mind if. And then, and in the story, what I what I did discover when I was writing was just that the guy, our hero, he he doesn't he just hesitates. He doesn't really say no, but he's just kind of like, oh, you know. And the other guy is in a particular place where that's enough to derail the whole deal for him, you know. Yeah. And so sometimes, like that that vignette popped into my head, and I just thought, oh, that is so human. That is just us, isn't it? It's like you know? Seinfeld. I was going to say Seinfeldian. It's kind of like the right. Seinfeldian twist, you know, that really right. is funny and. Just those like, and like you say, he doesn't say no. He's not like a dick about it. He just pauses. Right. And in that pause, everything can unravel in a, yeah. a yeah. human exchange. And I think that's very true to life. And I certainly recognize it in my own experience. But it's a lovely story. I read a review of the book as I was prepping that pointed to that story as, a, as an allegory for climate change. I don't know if that was on your brain at all. But I was kind of like, wow, that's an interesting angle on that huh. one. Huh. Like a, the disintegration of a, of our home, you know. I think maybe everybody's got climate on their mind these days, so you're yeah. you're always sort of tuned for it. But oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because after after this happens, the guy who who should have sold the house, he's so stubborn, and now he's so broke that the house just kind of falls apart and nobody gets it. You know, and nobody gets it. Well, yeah. it's a lovely story, and it's a fitting end to the collection. And I am grateful for you for letting this run a little bit long. We got to complete the cycle. Uh, and kind of take listeners on a full tour of your new book, which is just wonderful. And the way that I like to end my conversations is by asking if you're working on anything new. No pressure if you're just enjoying this one, but is there something in the works? You know, I, I, I took a break from fiction just because I, I sometimes feel like the well has to fill up a little bit. But since uh, I, I'm not doing at this moment, not working, but uh, for the last three or four months, I was working on a, a, a TV pilot for what we mentioned earlier, Civil Warland. It's kind of come back alive again. Nice. Uh, and I'm working with this wonderful uh, writer named Allison Silverman. And uh, so we're just kind of coming back to that material. And it was it's really been fun, you know, it's, uh, for a, a different medium. And we've got the idea of doing stop motion animation with this wonderful director named Duke Johnson, who did Anomalisa. So we're kind of perfecting that a little bit, and it's kind of exciting, you know. And you're getting used to your new environs in Los Angeles. Yeah, yeah. Just we have a beautiful dog, and she's loving it. We take her around the block once a day past the cool coffee shops, and it's very, mm -hmm. you know. What kind nice of dog you life. got? Oh, we got a yellow lab named Gwyn, and she's ten, and oh. uh, she's just a dear heart. And she yeah, get in the so. ocean? 
Oh yeah, well she she does, but but um, she had a knee problem. So whenever she goes to the beach, she kind of aggravates that. So we're, we it's pretty few and far between. She loves it, but but she gets excited and then she hurts her knee again. So got it, got it. Well, welcome to town. I am so appreciative, uh, I you know of you with your generosity of time. Congratulations on the new book. It's great to see you again. Yeah, you too, and thank you for guiding us through that. That was really fun. I learned some things about my book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good to see you, George. Thank you so much. All right, everybody, there we have it. That is George Saunders, and his new collection is called Liberation Day. It is available from Random House. You can find George on the internet at georgesaundersbooks.com. I do not believe he is on social media. So you're just going to have to read his book. Again, it is called Liberation Day, an excellent new collection just published yesterday. Go get your copy. You can also watch this interview if you would like. You can see George and I in conversation at the Other People YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for the show by name, Other PPL with Brad Listy, and watch my conversation with George Saunders as it unfolded. If you would like to sign up for my weekly newsletter, my once-a-week newsletter, you can do that at the show's official website, otherppl.com. You can also sign up for it at my website, bradlisty.com. It doesn't matter where you do it. It's the same newsletter at either site. If you would like to support this show, I would really appreciate it. It's uh, easy to do. You can support this program for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash other ppl pod i depend on listener support so if you're a regular listener if you get something from the show if you love this episode and you want to throw a dollar in the hat or three or five or ten or whatever you can swing you can do that at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash other ppl pod and again as you move up the scale you can get stuff you can get merch check it out patreon.com slash other ppl pod Don't forget to take a couple of minutes to rate and review the show wherever you listen. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever it is, rate the show, write a review. It helps and it takes just a couple of minutes to do. If you would like to read my novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, out there now in trade paperback, ebook, or audiobook editions. I am the narrator of the audiobook, so check it out if you so desire. One more time, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right. Oh, and if you want to write to me, if you have something to say, you can email me. The address is letters at otherppl.com. And I think that's it. What a great week. What a show. Always great to have George Saunders as the guest and to get to pick his brain a bit. Next week on the program, I will be in conversation with Jonathan Escoffrey. He has written one of the most buzzy, talked about debuts of the season. It's a new collection of linked stories that just blew me away. It's called If I Survive You. I will be in conversation with Jonathan Escoffrey next week, so stay tuned. He is a wonderful new talent. All right? All right. Thanks for listening, you guys. I'll talk to you very soon. Mm -hmm.